Everybody, my name is Luke Marshall, and you are listening to Things Observed Times Para Power Mapping. You are listening to both all at once. And I am here, of course, with Clonny Pin Gosh. You can follow him on Twitter at Clonny Pin underscore Gosh, and you can listen to all of his podcasts at Para Power Mapping. And you can follow me on Twitter at Thing Observer. And you can listen to things observed on most podcast platforms. And today you are listening to a show that actually learned how to pronounce the person's name who we're discussing. Eric <laughs> Yan Hanusen. Uh, I believe I, I yeah, said it correctly. We were practicing beforehand. We were putting each other through our steps. And we, uh, we did the work, folks. Um, so Yeah, we're going to be talking about Eric Yan Hanusen. And uh, I'm very excited to discuss this. But before we get into all of that, I'm just going to be a courteous guest. And how are you doing, Mr. Gosh? I'm doing great, Luke. And I'm going to be a courteous guest slash host and uh, just once again ex express how um, excited I am to, to be on the old Zencaster with you and... Uh, yeah, it's it's been a pleasure, and you know, full disclosure, listeners, um, Luke and I just uh, we just spent what like an hour and a half just having a a lovely conversation. I'm doing yeah, it. yeah, we did. It was a good conversation, and we're about to do an even better podcast. So, do you think that there's anything that we need to do before we just go ahead and start diving into some of the questions and subject matter in hand to set it up? Or do you think that we ought to just go ahead and just, just start diving into the meat of things? Yeah, I, I don't think that there are um, any refreshers that we need to give folks, uh, assuming that everyone will have listened to the first part of our collaborative investigation into Eric Yan Hanusen. Um, now that we know the the official Danish pronunciation of this, uh, you know, pseudonymous um, handle for for the Nazi Nostradamus. So 
uh, yeah, I think we can just dig in um, to the meat, as you were saying. And uh, yeah, maybe maybe if there is any further contextualization that comes to us that we need to, you know, take a second and introduce as as we go along. Uh, if if that if that happens, we can uh, do that. But I think we're good to go. Hell yeah, sounds good, because I feel like if we were to try and kind of rehash some of the stuff that we talked about previously, we'd probably just do another hour and a half long episode on this guy, because truly (laughs) there's so much to say about him. So if you need a refresher, go check out the last episode, dear people in the audience. But anyways, so Mr. Gosh, now maybe you could walk us through the time period of Hennison. Hannison's life, starting with his magnum opus to his forming a film company and producing a film with some sus undertones, to say the very least. So it's Mel Gordon who refers to Eric Jan Hannison's, uh, now I'm not going to be able to pronounce this, Das Geden, Geden Kunlesen slash Telepathy as his quote-unquote magnum opus. Um, Something I wonder is whether uh, EGH's limb-hang-esque tendency of disclosing some of the tricks of the trade to build his trustworthiness and credibility is perhaps a practice that's indicative of his possible espionage work. Regardless, what seems apparent is that Hanussen was a non-parel compiler of useful information and public relations savant, and that this limited hangout-esque combination of occasional truthfulness with outright lies and obfuscation is not only evocative of intelligence and propaganda work, but might have made him an attractive prospect as a potential asset. Hanussen formed a film company in 1919 to produce a film called Hypnosis, Hanussen's First Adventure, that would lend itself to his burgeoning infamy. According to Mel Gordon, although it was largely in the Belasco a realistic melodrama style, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari appears to have at least been a thematic touchpoint. Fascinatingly, there are overtones of sexual slavery in the movie, with Hanussen playing a Sherlock Holmes type whose nemesis is a quote-unquote Indian fakir who puts Viennese girls under hypnosis to entrap them in sexual slavery. Interesting to think about this film in relation to Hanussen's later flirtations with straight-up pimping for SA and SS leadership and sexual blackmail practice. It's also interesting to note his decision to use a quote-unquote Indian fakir as the antagonist in the film when juxtaposed with the incident where Hanussen basically trafficked 
a 14-year-old Indian boy who was working as a pool boy on EGH's, EJH's, excuse me, yacht to satiate Count Heldorf's sadistic and pedophilic tendencies. Hannison seemingly contrived a situation where the young boy was falsely accused of ogling one of the young actresses or glorified prostitutes that Hannison brought on such voyages. Kabir's supposed impropriety provided the justification for Heldorf's flogging of him. We're ahead of ourselves, though, as uh, this would happen a decade or so after the production of hypnosis. One other thing to mention is that there are some apparent thematic similarities between Hannison's film and Hans Heinz Avers' uh, fiction. I, I should have thought to look up that pronunciation too, Luke, but I think I did decently. Maybe I actually we'll know someone with that last name, and that's the correct pronunciation. <laughs> Avers? Like that? Yes, yes. Um, it was uh, actually the first girl I ever dated. Um, so oh, very that is the correct pronunciation. <laughs> yeah, here's my personal connection to the story. I'm outing myself. Okay, dive in. Go, please. Uh, no, that's that's all there is to the story. Yeah. But anyways, <laughs> I thought that was the introduction of a, a long saga about um, the aristocratic the, uh, family that she daughter, came from. <laughs> yeah, a descendant of Avers uh, um, hypnotically seducing you or something. But no, no okay. not to right. my knowledge. We'll, we'll anyways, keep, never kiss and tell. So we'll we'll keep those details uh, on on the DL. All right. Um, where was I? So, uh, yeah, so we were mentioning the thematic similarities between uh, Hanussen's film and Hans Heinz Avers' fiction, who is a character that we'll be introducing a little later, a figure that may provide the telling link between Hanussen and Crowley. And if that wasn't sinister enough, this story is going to take yet another sinister turn. So I'm going to just let you go off. But uh, just to set it up, what would follow in Hanusen's life after he left his young wife? And what would he get into after linking up with tobacco tycoon Hans Hauser? Uh, I just thought of one thing that I also wanted to add um, to the to the discussion about Hanusen's film company and uh, more specifically his quote-unquote magnum opus, this memoir and text that uh, Hanusen produced. So just to be explicit, it's like, I think it's one of the primary books that uh, Hanusen published um, that, that he penned. Uh, we'll talk about his publishing career and the various occult, astrological, and other like weeklies that um, he purchased and or started in Berlin in the 1930s, a little later. Um, but this, this book, uh, some of it, portions of it uh, include him like detailing all these different aspects of his mentalist and um, magical, stage magical routines. 
uh, he would divulge like a lot of information about it. And then I've admittedly not read the book, although I've read many books about Hanusen at this point in prepping for this. Uh, I'm not sure if there is an English translation um, of it or not, uh, but I but I think it's also the same text that uh, includes it is like Hanusen's similarly to Crowley's uh, the Confessions of Alistair Crowley uh, and Autohagiography. I think that's the exact title um, or the the subtitle more specifically. Uh, I think Hanusen kind of weaves um, these uh, tell-alls about his mentalism and telepathic routines with this overarching narrative of his life, and that's where we get a lot of this information. Um, but back to the other question about Hans Hauser and uh, the beginning of Hanusen's uh, espionage career that. Um, Luke just uh, segued us into. So in 1921, Eric Yan Hanusen left his young Anshanu wife and daughter to travel around the Eastern Mediterranean. And in a positively Crowleyan fashion, Hanusen also made visits to mystic oases in the distant East and South. That's a quote. Uh, during these travels, we're talking Greece, Turkey, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, French Algeria, and um, even Jerusalem in Palestine at the time. Touring the quote new colonial protectorates and mandates awarded to victorious France, Britain, and Italy. End quote. His travels were triggered by his chance encounter with the Austrio, or excuse me, Austro-Hungarian tobacco tycoon Hans Hauser. And guess where Hanusen met Hauser? Do you know? At the institute, where he practiced hypnotism. His connection with Hauser is what led to Hanusen seemingly getting involved in espionage and arms trading. So the fact that they met in a hypnotic clinic is a perfect encapsulation of the intersections of hypnosis, occultism, stage magic, and espionage. A bevy of seemingly unconnected interests that are curiously prevalent among a handful of espionage and or MK connected folks that we could easily rattle off. Alistair Crowley and William Joseph Bryan immediately come to mind. G.H. Estabrooks, etc. Hilariously, Hauser came to the Institute to seek treatment for some kind of hysterical or psychosomatic choking condition that he was dealing with, and Hanusen was able to remedy it by placing the tycoon under hypnosis. Actually, Luke, I'm, I'm just thinking about it now. I'd have to go back and look for this section in one of the assorted uh, Crowley biographies I've dipped into, but 
I'm pretty sure I read an account where Crowley similarly was tasked with caring for this wealthy British industrialist or um, aristocrat who was dealing with some kind of nervous or mental disorder. And they ended up becoming boon companions and traveling in northern Africa and the Mediterranean for a time. I can't remember if there's mention of Crowley hypnotizing the guy. That would be wild if true, but don't quote me on that. Um, it's probably it's probably unlikely, honestly. I'm also trying to remember right now wh- which book which book I uh, found mention of this story in. I think it might have been uh, Tobias Churton's book about Crowley's time in Paris. Um, I was I was actually trying to find the uh, reference to this story in Spence's uh, Secret Agent 666 um, earlier today, and I didn't, I didn't find it in there, so I, uh, I think it might have been Churton, but I'm not positive. Although I can't remember exactly where I read it, I do know that at least something along those uh, contours occurred in Crowley's life. The anecdote about the beginning of Hauser and Hanusen's or Hanusen's relationship is so insane. So Hauser requested Hanusen's service as he basically couldn't eat without being placed in a hypnotic trance. <laughs> Can you imagine, Luke? Like every day you sit down to eat like a pork chop or something and you have to have uh this like I have yeah. to have Hannison put me uh, into a trance in order to <laughs> accomplish that task. I'm fortunate yeah. enough to not be at the uh at the will of uh any hypnotist when it comes to uh, you know having an appetite and being able to swallow and stuff. So grateful That's for good. that. You heard it here first, folks. Luke is not um dependent upon a uh occulted hypnotist for his um basic motor functions so that's good i only get hypnotized by peoples from the infamous avers family um you know (laughs) into you know dating them and stuff so that's my big reveal for the episode so uh sometime in march 1921 uh after uh hanusen began um began his relationship with Hauser and started uh, hypnotically feeding him. Um, And uh, Hauser's uh, usual level of rich man bravado was restored. He hatched a plan to purchase boxcars of surplus army goods from the Austrian government left over from the war which he could get at cut-rate prices, and then he and Hanusen uh, would travel with them to Greece, where he would use the goods to barter for Greek tobacco. He also hoped that Hanusen's hypnotic abilities might aid in his negotiations with the Greek Secretary of War. (laughs) 
it's just so crazy to think about this guy that literally cannot eat <laughs> without being put in a hypnotic trance, then enlisting uh, this stage hypnotist with the idea of having him trying, uh, employing him uh, in hypnotizing a secretary of war of a relatively smallish European country um, during during these kinds of arms trading economic negotiations. Um, and at the time, Greece was gearing up for conflict with the Turks. So it's important to know that. Evidently, Hannesen and Hauser failed in their gambit to sell the surplus army goods that were falling into disrepair to the Greek army. But this is the point at which it seems highly likely that Hanusin became involved in espionage. Let's go ahead and quote the Spence essay once again to provide the crucial context. Quote, when Viennese authorities cracked down on the exhibition of hypnotism, Hanusin looked for greener pastures. With Austrian tobacco magnate Hans Hauser, Hanusin became part of a scheme to sell surplus military equipment to the Greeks, who at the time were engaged in a bitter war against the nascent Turkish Republic. The affair reeks of international intrigue, though Hanusin's job supposedly was to use his hypnotic power as added leverage in negotiations. Luke, do you want to read this next paragraph just to give my voice a break for a sec? Yeah, absolutely. It may be significant that in the Balkan tobacco trade, Hauser almost certainly dealt with the tobacco company, a British firm which had also happened to provide cover in Europe for SIS agents and ex-employees of the Secret Service. Moreover, the British backed the Greeks while the French, Italians, and Soviets quietly supplied weapons to the Turks. Hanusin recalled that he and a companion were refused landing on the Italian-controlled island of Rhodes on suspicion that they were Greek spies. His subsequent wanderings through the Levant and North Africa added much to his knowledge of Eastern mysticism, but also provided ample opportunity for spying. Yeah, so Hanusin and Hauser ended up vying over an Armenian beauty, and Hanusin turned to his stage magic and hypnotism routine to woo her. He ultimately bested the tobacco tycoon, seemingly, becoming a celebrity in Salonika, uh, not sure if I got that right, in the process, and causing Hauser to decide to pack up and head back to his manor in um, Austria, his tail between his legs. Hanusin then sets about touring various Greek theaters with mixed results. And so after this, Hanusin would link up with another interesting figure, the impresario Philip Neufeld, and how could this relate potentially to the work that he was doing um, regarding British espionage? Yeah. So in Alexandria, Hanusin met this impresario, uh, Philip Neufeld, 
who was a fellow Luftmensch from Galicia. Uh, Neufeld was supposedly able to communicate in 14 languages and had managed to, quote, make himself indispensable to the British colonial authorities. Further contact with British espionage agents could have happened at this point, evoking uh, Casablanca, Maki, which was his nickname, aka Neufeld, ran the canteen at the British Army Officers Club. Maki also owned British Railroad stock, as he was evidently the only shareholder conversant in, quote, Arabic, English, Hebrew, and Yiddish. Evidently, Maki was running into some trouble because of his accounting methods. Uh, and so he seems to have used Hanusin as cover for a quick change of scenery. But we have to point out that, again, there's a good chance that this is consistent with creating cover for espionage work or uh, intelligence gathering of some kind. So if you've read Spence's Secret Agent 666 or other texts about Crowley's life, you might know that he also seemingly would use vaudeville and performances of various kinds as pretext for intelligence work. I can think of two different examples that I've mentioned in different uh, PPM episodes about Crowley and his espionage work uh, of this variety. At one point, Crowley managed an all-woman cabaret that appears to have provided him with cover for getting into Russia. And then there's also another extremely interesting account of Crowley organizing this performative magical ritual. If I remember correctly, I think it was uh, pre-World War I, but I'm not 100% positive. But um, this performance was called the Rites of Eleusis, an allusion to the Greek mystery tradition of the uh, Eleusinian mysteries. And Crowley put it on at London's Caxton Hall. According to Spence, the performance was more of an invocation of the seven planetary deities than it was a recreation of the actual rites of Eleusis. Um, Eleusis? Eleusis. I think you have the pronunciation correction. I'm doing that Midwestern thing of like uh, turning my E's into A's. Anyways, at the first private performance, Crowley drugged the audience with mescaline cocktails. It's a wild account because right around that period, Crowley had been embroiled in a scandal when he published quote-unquote Rosicrucian secrets in the Equinox, and there's also mention of Everard Fielding in like the next paragraph in Spence's book, as well as these two other um, military or intelligence-connected individuals, Rafalovich Rafalovich and Captain Boney Fuller. All three were AA members 
with either military or intel connections, and they became involved in advising Crowley on whether or not to sue this newspaper man named Fenton, who evidently began attacking Crowley in his paper after he attended one of the performances and claimed to have been suddenly and non-consensually kissed on the mouth in the darkened theater by a person in a dress with a mustache. So, uh, <laughs> sounds like the rights of Eleusis were uh, typical Crowley shit. Um, anyways, those are two examples that I can recall of Crowley organizing various performances that were likely connected to Intel. The fact Mescaline was involved in the latter is especially interesting. All right, but back to Hanusen and Maki. So Maki, uh, or Neufeld, organized an ill-fated tour of palaces and venues in places like Damascus and Aleppo for Hanusen and himself, after which the two split for a time and Hanusen toured Jewish Palestine on his lonesome. Hanusen and Maki then met back up in Kos, where Hanusen was venerated as a living god following his quote-unquote midnight seance amid the ruins of the Escalop Temple. In Rhodes, the Italian police refused them entry. Uh, we actually just mentioned this. Um, oh, here it is. So, Hanusen and Maki made it as far as French Algeria and Cairo. It could be worth cross-referencing this period with Crowley's travels. I wonder if they would have crossed paths pre-Berlin. More on that later. In early 1922, Hanusen was supposedly employed as a detective by the British colonial forces and he tracked down a group of uh, hashish smugglers, which led to his purported imprisonment by the traffickers and his eventual escape. Supposedly, he even claimed a reward. Now, this story could obviously be some of that auto-hagiographizing that's so prevalent among these occult spy types, but as we just saw, Spence speculates that Hanusen might have actually been involved in the hashish smuggling himself. Either way, seems fairly likely this is further indication of potential es espionage work during this period. Very interesting. And so, how does this correspond to the movements of Hanusen with Crowley's travels during this time period? So, according to Spence's Secret Agent 666, Crowley's former SIS handler, Everard Fielding, was relocated to the Eastern Mediterranean Special Intelligence Bureau in 1916. I'm unsure if he was still there at the time of uh, Hanusen's travels, but it's possible. And this would 
be even more indicative of uh, Crowley and Hanusen at least having met, if not having like some kind of undercover official espionage relationship, possibly a handler and asset type one. Um, because, uh, as we already mentioned, the uh, Tobacco Company Limited um, was uh, a front for the SIS, which was the precursor of MI6. So, um, Everard Fielding, who often had worked with Crowley, uh, may very well have been working in that region at the time. Similarly, this is one of the things that I'm probably most excited to share, and I think there's a chance that it's something that others who have written about the uh, possible connections between Hanusen and Crowley, such as Spence and Lewis, may not have covered yet. Uh, I'm not going to say that they don't know about it. They, they may very well have. Um, yeah, so I, I wouldn't go that far. But there's, but there's a chance that uh, this is something kind of new, I think. And it's definitely speculative, which uh, makes it more likely that it's new. I cross-referenced Mel Gordon's Eric Yan Hanusen and the Confessions of Alistair Crowley, as I had a hunch that Hanusen and Crowley might have even met prior to the early 1930s, when it seems fairly likely that Crowley and Hanusen were both working as British intel assets. Crowley may have even been uh, Hanusen's handler. I guess I just mentioned that. Uh, sorry. We'll dig into a few of the figures that link Crowley and Hanusen in late Weimar Berlin in just a bit. So Crowley gives an account of returning to Egypt in October of 1922. He, as is well known, had spent um, plenty of time in Cairo prior to this. I mean, it's like a crucial component of his whole uh, magical story and uh i believe it was in egypt that the the entity uh iwas uh first communicated with or through crowley's wife right and i'm right there aren't i luke uh yes yes uh rose kelly and dictated the book of the law through her for sure okay cool um and that that would have been pre-1922 right i believe so yes okay that's, that's my memory as well, at least. Crowley returned to Egypt. Um, he had been doing some of his trademark mountaineering and probably intelligence gathering in India, potentially for the SIS um, at that time, uh, as he was more often than not throughout his travels. So Crowley writes of sailing from Bombay to Egypt on a ship literally called the Egypt. He states that he reached um, Aden on the 9th of October, at which point he had to quarantine for a day at Moses's Wells, a requirement at the time for anyone coming from Bombay due to plague. So Crowley arrived at Cairo on the 14th, where he writes of living at, quote, Shepherd's Hotel until Guy Fawkes Day, wallowing in the flesh pots, end quote. <laughs> Typical Crowley. 
he states that he wouldn't even go out to see the pyramids. He does write of composing romantic poetry inspired by his dip into the quote-unquote flesh pots and uh, also of conducting ethnological research in the fish market. Um, those are also his words, which I think might be a double entendre uh, on A.C.'s part, alluding to both his sexual forays and possibly intelligence work. Here's what I mean. From the time I've spent with Spence's Secret Agent 666, Crowley's Confessions, some of Tobias Churton's books on Crowley's travels, etc., it seems like quote-unquote ethnological research was not a uncommon code word for espionage in AC's intel-gathering career. I could be wrong, but that's just my sense. Uh, I feel like I've seen like phrases akin to that or that specific phrase a number of times. Historically, this sort of thing often provides cover or justification for espionage um, throughout at least the past century and a half, and it seems to have uh, during Crowley's various travels. And you mentioned in the notes you sent me that Hanusin would have a spiritual crisis of sorts in Egypt around this time. So is there a way that this might relate to the theory about a possible crowley Hanusin encounter in Egypt in 1922? Yeah. Another thing about uh, this time in Egypt is that Crowley attests that his practical magic dropped off significantly, which is very interesting, as when we compare his account of this period to Hanusin's, it not only appears likely that their paths may have crossed, even if very briefly, with a decent chance that they were in Cairo at the exact same time, which we'll break down in a second, but um, they seem to have both had a spiritual crisis of uh, sorts, and for the both of them during the uh, latter parts of 1922, which is very interesting. Anderson wrote in his memoir about having experienced a kind of crisis of faith in his own extra-normal abilities during this time. Crowley writes that during his, like, weeks or months-long stay in Egypt, I'm not entirely certain how long he was there, as I'm not sure he details the exact timeline in Confessions, but anyways, Crowley talks about how his own magical practice was basically non-existent. Um, and Luke and I actually talked about this earlier, but it's got us wondering whether there's a possibility that what with uh, EJH already being linked to British intel earlier in the very same period of travel via the SIS uh, and the Front Tobacco Company Limited, and then potentially Maki and the bar for uh, British Army officers that, as we mentioned, Maki uh, managed or, or ran, basically. Um, we were wondering, could the similarities between Crowley and Hanusin's accounts at this time and this overlap in their itineraries indicate that they even got up to something British intel related together. Is it possible EGH met Crowley and 
did his run-in with the beast lead to Hanusen's apparent crisis of faith? It's not hard to imagine Alistair Crowley fucking with uh, EGH's head in some fashion. Or was it possible that EGH's account of a spiritual crisis during this time and sudden doubt in his hypnotic and magical abilities, which he claims was brought about by an Arab financier or, I think, commodities trader uh, who supposedly interrogated him um, about his, you know, purported uh, paranormal skills. Um, is it possible that this crisis was actually brought about by his encounter with Crowley and or even Hanusen comparing his, his magical powers to those professed by the British mage. Or another option, could something related to Hanusen's interactions with Crowley and undercover work for British intel have so discomfited him that it caused him to have this breakdown? Those are a few of uh, my wonderments. As for Hanusen's leg of his respective journeying and how it matches up with Crowley's. So, uh, as I said earlier, I went back to Gordon Eric Yan Hanusen and read the chapter that details his travels, which uh, pretty much entirely pulls from Hanusen's memoir. And Hanusen embarked from Austria in the spring of 21, as we noted. Uh, Gordon writes that Hauser hatched his plan to trade surplus military goods to the Greeks in March of that year, assuming that it would have taken him some time to set the scheme in motion, I would guess that he and EJH wouldn't have departed for Greece until April at the earliest, but again, I could be wrong here. Um, that said, at two different points, Gordon writes that EJH's travels in 21 and 22 lasted a, quote, year and a half, end quote, and, uh, quote, 17 months, end quote. Gordon also writes that EJH concluded his travels around the Middle East and North Africa back in Egypt. In fact, his crisis uh, occurred in a town north of Cairo called Tanta. And then he apparently met holy men in the Eritrean city of Osmara. Now, I would assume that in order to travel back to Vienna, he would have had to travel north from Eritrea, possibly via train, back through Cairo, and then sailed out of a northern Egyptian port to return to Europe. I haven't had a chance to confirm this, but that would be my guess. So depending on the exact timeline, it seems like there are a couple different points in uh, EJH's travels where he and Crowley could have crossed paths. It's not an ironclad speculation, obviously, but a couple points. One, remember that both Crowley and Hanusen, as intel assets and seemingly veritable 
double or sometimes even triple agents who also happened to be celebrities of varying degrees were stuck in this perpetual balancing act of purposefully divulging hints of their intelligence and military ties to build their personas while also being careful to avoid the highly classified stuff, the sorts of things that could get them in trouble with their handlers or blow their cover. So both of their writings are littered with truths and non-truths, and we can't necessarily take them at their word. My point being that when there are overlaps, and especially when both seem to conform to a kind of black hole in their respective bios, or one that uh, diverges from um, general patterns in their uh, histories, this might be indication that they were up to something. Also, although we're not experts on Crowley or Hanusin to the degree that some of these other writers were, I would guess that Luke would agree with me on this. I think that Crowley and uh, Hanusin probably both engaged in a bit of obfuscation or a lesion of the actual nature of their travels, and may have even altered the timelines of their own accounts uh, or claimed to be somewhere they actually were not to obscure their presence in another area. And I would assume that this is an, an uncommon occurrence in their writings. Um, my point being that it's possible that even if some of the paper trail apparently disproved this theory, that Hanusin and Crowley may have met in Egypt in 22, uh, if such evidence were to be found and it was sourced from Hanusin or Crowley's own accounts of their travels, it might not be reliable. To move beyond the realm of speculation here would be really time-intensive, probably beyond our own resources. Uh, we would have to cross-reference this theory and timeline with any documentation that might exist of Hanusen's return to Vienna and or articles covering his performances upon it. Gordon writes that Hanusen was back in Vienna in the autumn of 1922. In my opinion, this leaves enough time for Hanusen to have met Crowley in Cairo, possibly in mid-October, and then departed for Europe via boat, perhaps sometime in early November. And lastly, even if they didn't meet in person during that time, which may be the case, it seems like there's a good chance that the expat and British military networks that they ran in overlapped, and they probably, I mean, it seems pretty likely to me that they would have known or met some of the same people, might have even received their respective orders via the same British intel contacts. I'm closer to the golden dawn Immersed in Crowley's uniform Of imagery 
I'm living in a silent film Portraying him love's sacred realm of dream reality I'm frightened by the total gold Drawing to the ragged hole And I ain't got the power anymore No, I ain't got the power anymore I'm the twisted name on Garbo's eyes Living proof of Churchill's lies I'm destiny I'm torn between the light and dark Where others see their target Divine symmetry Don't be 
All right. So, Luke, can you tell us about uh, Hanusen's attempts to sabotage the soaring popularity of the Jewish strongman Breitbart, who was competing with Eric Jan Hanusen for Eyes and Cronin in Vienna? Who was this modern-day Samson? Yeah, so Sigmund Breitbart was a strongman, and he would do these public performances in Vienna, and he would, you know, bend iron bars and fight through steel chains, and he would, you know, drag wagons with his teeth and all of this uh, crazy um, feats of strength. And this would um, attract the attention of Hanusen, who began to become a bit jealous of his uh, popularity. And it's also, you know, worth noting that Breitbart was, um, you know, somewhat of a, of a early Zionist, you could say. And I love this quote from him. If I see an anti-Semite, I give him fair warning. If he persists, I break him in half like a matchstick. And when he would perform in front of uh, Jewish audiences, he would wear a uh, Star of David, uh, like banner type of thing. Um, draped over one of his shoulders. But, you know, he's a, a very interesting character in his own right. But eventually, Hanusen would try to kind of uh, sabotage his act uh, by calling into question his feats of strength. He would even at one point break into one of the strongman's hotel rooms, and he discovered that these chains that he would fight through um, and bust through would have, you know, secret links in them that, you know, so he could, you know, kind of uh, uh, fool the audience. And he would eventually actually kind of uh, challenge Breitbart and um, his kind of sidekick, Marta, who would perform in some of these uh, acts with Breitbart to perform before a panel of, um, you know, experts, one of which was uh, you know, there were two engineers, which is kind of funny, a physiologist a, and a psychoanalyst and the chairman of the Austrian Athletic Association. Um, and through this, you know, panel that was uh, done, they would, uh, you know, this kind of poke holes in their theories and figure out that these iron bars that Marta would bend into horseshoes were not as they seemed and whatnot. And I did get the chance since our last discussion to watch Invincible by, um, oh, I'm going blank. Uh, help me out here. Uh, hurts off. Yes. And uh, so now that I can get back to you with my film review, I would say it was somewhere yeah, between mid and good, but it is highly fictionalized. <laughs> To, to say the least, but somewhere between mid and good. I enjoyed aspects of it, but I also thought that there was something to be desired from it. Definitely, yeah. I, I can agree with that. I, I would say that I found the, uh, the dialogue very mid, um, personally. Uh, some of the acting was good, um, and, uh, I mean, the production values are always... Uh, impressive um his filmmaking the the cinematography um it's also interesting the the ways in which he like seemingly really tried to 
recreate the like ambiance of the palace of the occult and like leaned into those portrayals by just it almost seemed like a third of the movie uh was just like musical numbers in the palace of uh, the occult i mean there were some pretty lengthy uh breaks in the film in the narrative where it's like uh breitbart just um wandering around before his first performance uh as Hennison's new uh, strongman, Aryanized strongman. And uh, yeah, there's like a 10 minute sequence of like just music, um, which, which I found interesting. Um, it's Tim Roth, right? Yeah, it's Tim Roth. And he's the guy who plays Hennison's uh, character in the movie. He, uh, you know, there's the big reveal where he is um, actually Herschel Steinschneider after, you know, uh, Zish's character in the film, you know, uh, while on a uh, boat with uh, that belongs to Tim Roth's character in the in the film, calls him into question in front of his Nazi buddies, and he's like convened in front of a a trial before right. this judge, and you know, it's revealed that he's actually Jewish and that he doesn't have all these magical abilities, and I mean, you can. Imagine how this uh, pans out in Germany leading up to the, the Nazis seizing power and stuff, you know. But exactly. um, yeah, I, I thought actually... there was good elements of it. But the guy who plays Zish's character is actually um, a real life two time strongman world champion named Joku Ahola or, or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was interesting that they use an actual strong man to play his role, but um, his acting could be a little bit better. But I mean, he is a strong man primarily, but I guess he was in some other stuff. Like he also had a small role in uh, the film Kingdom of Heaven, which is an awesome movie. But oh, wait, what? Uh, yeah, really? I, yeah, I just saw He's that on it? his IMDb page. I can't remember about the, the what, crusades right yeah yeah about the crusades yeah Whoa. yeah so i'm okay. not sure what his role in the movie was but i guess he had a brief acting career but i think invincible to my knowledge was like his only um role as like you know um a lead character and i would say it's worth right. um a, a watch if you're you know really interested in the you know uh Hanusin subject matter, but you know, this obviously is a highly fictionalized portrayal of both Breitbart and Hanusin. Uh, but there definitely are, you know, homages to real things um, in it as well. And Tim Roth as Hanusin goes off on some pretty interesting tirades and, uh, you know, long moments of dialogue that uh, I actually could see Hanusin, you know, uh, saying these things but yeah i would put it somewhere between yeah. mid and good but i mean if you're the type of person to you know listen to four to six hours of us talking about hanusin um it might be <laughs> up your alley so uh can i just say one thing about so your review got me thinking a little bit about the uh portrayals of of hanusin and um I would say one critique of the film would be the absence of like any espionage element, and then also the way in which Herzog um, seems to have 
he's kind of flattened the uh the like orgy parties on the Ursul Four, um uh Hanusen's pleasure cruises and like he he alludes to he he kind of shows uh Hanusen like pimping people out, but there isn't any at least as far as I remember, there isn't any portrayal of all of that being about um him actually collecting collecting sexual blackmail compromise f- footage images pictures of you know different sa ss um and uh nazi party members um nazi aristocrats and uh industrialists like that that type of individual um you know doing doing something um yeah the, the blackmail yeah. uh portion is completely absent from the film um I, yeah. I at least can give credit to herzog for um you know insinuating that there was a you know decadent and kind of like a uh slightly sexually debauched element to the nazis um you know right which is, uh, you know, absent from a lot of depictions of Nazis in media. Um, uh, I found it very humorous to scene when they're on the boat, you know, before uh, Zisha, you know, exposes Hanusin um, and it leads to trial. But when they're on the boat, they have the the guy who plays Heinrich Himmler and it looks exactly like Heinrich Himmler. They cast it very well. Incredible casting. Yeah, but um, it's very funny because they have all these, uh, you know, uh, blonde Germanic looking babes on it. And Heinrich Himmler is like kissing one of the lady's feet and drinks champagne (laughs) out of her high heels, um, which I thought was pretty funny, which um, but yeah, Yeah. definitely could have touched more on the espionage and the sexual blackmail um fact of things and it does you know point to the fact that uh hanusin was a kind of sexually debauched person and it has him um beat up his girlfriend in the the movie um so i mean it definitely doesn't paint him in a good light and maybe i'm wrong and i mean you know you don't want to have one dimensional characters in a movie because that gets boring but I do feel like there's a slight part of Hanusin that maybe too humanized isn't the right word. But I feel like by ignoring yeah. the sexual blackmail and the espionage element and that there's something, you know, kind of missing from his character um, in the film that was there in real life. And he doesn't come across as sympathetic at all but i don't think it also comes across just how bad he was you know because kind of by the end you know he just kind of gives this um speech to breitbart about how you know as you know jews during this period in time we can either assimilate and fit in with everybody else and um or you know we can be kind of stepped upon and, and denigrated in that he would choose the former as opposed to the latter, which I think, um, you know, I I could see Hanusin in real life even making this rationale to some extent. But I don't feel like um, it depicts kind of how sinister his intentions are, if that makes sense. 
Totally. Uh, yeah, I would agree 100%. It's, it's almost kind of like um, his collusion and collaboration with the Nazis gets uh, presented as primarily being, or like mostly being motivated by money making, you know? Um, which obviously, like, money, money was one of the primary motivators for Hannison, but then just like you were, uh, just like you were describing, there are some of these, these monologues or soliloquies moments where, uh, Hannison, um, gives that rationale that does feel like it's verging too close to humanizing him. I, I would agree with that. Yeah, and, and I um, feel like those monologues would even, you know, not necessarily be out of place if they delved deeper into just how debauched um, Hanusen was, because since it's kind of, you know, light on the sexual blackmail, the, you know, sexual debauchery or, you know, whatever the best term is for that in Hanusen's life, that if they had delved deeper into that subject matter, then you could put the monologues of his in um, better context, you know. But um, once yeah. again, I don't want to say that he comes across as too sympathetic in the movie because sympathetic isn't the right word, but he just doesn't come across as evil as um, I believe that he should have. But Tim Roth does a great job um, with the character. And I do think that there are, you know, very good things um, about the uh, about the film. But I just feel like there are, you know, elements to be desired. And if you watch the movie closely, I feel like Herzog knows more about all of this than it would maybe let on from kind of like a surface viewing of the movie. So I don't know why he didn't include to, you know incorporate some of the you know elements that we think are kind of lacking from the film because i don't think it's a it's a lack of knowledge yeah interesting yeah that's that's definitely something to wonder about and contend with um do you want to move on from the movie or yeah yeah let, let's do it so where are we now here in the news? Right. and so i mean i'm gonna refer to your notes a little bit because this is kind of an interesting side note that you dug up but even though this is somewhat unrelated but in trying to look into the possible social overlaps or connections between the two i just read a passage in spence's book that details how crowley was evidently connected to henry ford who obviously exerted significant influence on the anti-semitism of the nazis through his racist self-published essay the international jew and apparently in the years immediately following the Great War, Crowley was attempting to organize a Supreme Grand Council of Freemasonry via his millionaire backer, Albert Ryerson, who helped finance issues of the Equinox. And uh, Crowley hoped to subordinate Masonic orders to the Ordo Templi Orientis and transform Detroit into the esoteric Paris of the U.S., and what's fascinating about this is that Crowley had an open channel to Ford via Ryerson. And then when you consider the fact that Ford's anti-Semitism was instructed by the anti-Semitic literary forgery 
of that is the protocols of the learned elders of Zion, you begin to realize that all this industrialist back anti-Semitism was very, very much tied up with intelligence agencies. And the protocols were first published as part of a PSYOP scheme by the Tsarist secret police during a reactionary turn in Russia in response to the rise of liberalism. And the man who gave the protocols to Ford, a Russian named Boris Brazel, had become an informant for American military intelligence by 1919. And when you consider the fact that Ford's rabid anti-Semitic conspiracy theorizing was also inflected by the anti-Masonic rhetoric of the Protocols, which you know supposedly documented an international Jewish conspiracy to establish economic dominion through the manipulation of secret societies like the Masons. And then you just juxtapose this with the fact that Henry Ford was an ardent and avowed Freemason and appreciator of theosophy. The anti-Semitic conspiracy theorizing he spewed begins to take on an even more devious tinge. And I mean, this all circles back to the you know Christian theosophist writer and World War I-era espionage agent and wannabe American Fuhrer, William Dudley Pelly, who, too, was a literal Nazi asset during the 30s and 40s. And from what I can tell, it's not unlikely that some of these industrialist of the American Liberty League who organized the Wall Street push and were angling to establish fascism in the U.S. were actually rubbing shoulders with Pelly, and they might have even considered backing him. And so the business plot, though, um, as the American Legion was formed by the same capitalists who tried to establish an American military dictatorship, and they aimed to use the American Legion as the shock troops of this effort. And fascinatingly, Spence notes the possibility that Crowley may have used his contacts in Detroit to investigate communist organizing in the area via unions. But anyways, Ford appears to have been a part of this Detroit Masonic cohort as well. And there's so much there, but needless to say, it all causes one to wonder about the nature of the machinations of that most elite class who fan the flames of anti-Semitic sentiment to misdirect public frustration away from the real perpetrators of the huge loss of life in the first mechanized war, you know, meaning themselves, and the profit and plunder it brought them, and the economic depredations of that post-war period. There was maybe one other thing that I wanted to append to uh, some of the stuff that you just unpacked, um, Luke, which is, uh, oh, here it is. Sorry. Momentary uh, aphasia brain fart. But uh, part of the connection, part of the reason why uh, Luke was bringing up um, Ford, uh, Crowley's connection to him, and then the connection to the Wall Street putsch and specifically the American Legion, who the American Liberty League um, and the organizers of the Wall Street Putsch um, planned to utilize as this, you know, a 500,000-strong army to depose Franklin Delano Roosevelt, is the fact that the American Legion was also frequently used by the same uh, capitalist class in America in the 
um, post-Great War period to uh, strike break, beat up, beat up communist organizers and union organizers and activists. Um, in fact, there's, there's a book um, that I've cited in a previous episode that um, is about uh, anti-communism in, uh, in the United States in that period, uh, the, the first half of the 20th century, I believe. And I remember there's this very interesting uh, data point statistic um, from the, uh, I believe from the American Civil Liberties Union that um, claimed that at that time, right around the time, uh, in fact, I believe right around the time that Crowley would have been in Detroit and in connection to, to all of this stuff. And it's so interesting to think about him both uh, potentially investigating um, communist elements uh, and even looking for communist spies in Detroit at the same time that he was, you know, publicly professing, um, or at least later, later professing in his writings that he had this uh, grand vision of transforming Detroit into esoteric Paris. What I was going to say is that this ACLU statistic claimed, and I believe it, it's from like the late 20s or early 30s, that at the time, the most hateful violence in the United States was being committed by the uh, American Legion, more so than even the KKK at that time. I can't remember the exact years. I, I'd have to double check, but it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. Um, back to Crowley and uh, Hannison. It appears that one of the likeliest overlaps between Eric Jan Hanusen and Crowley and their respective circles in Berlin would be the German novelist, poet, and agent Hans Heinz Avers. This dude is like a Teutonic doppelganger of Crowley, and they seem to have shared mutual adoration. Now, Avers was born in Dusseldorf and... <laughs> which has me thinking about the Dusseldorf vampire um, from the previous part, and served in the Kaiser's military for a mere 44 days as a young man before he was discharged due to myopia. His writing career picked up where his abortive military career left off. Not unlike Crowley or Hanussen, I guess he operated a literary vaudeville for a time, but his impresario days were almost as short-lived as his jackboots. Yeah, and he seems to have really made a name for himself with a sequence of occult-inflected horror novels in the years immediately preceding World War I, beginning with The Sorcerer's Apprentice, which is an allusion to a poem by Goethe, speaking of, I guess, that first Narnia book as well. Well, anyways, The Sorcerer's Apprentice follows an authorial stand-in named Frank Braun, who, like Avers, was a writer, historian, and world traveler. And the plot concerns Braun's attempts to manipulate an evangelical Christian cult in a mountainous village in Italy for profit, a scheme that ultimately ends disastrously. And the horror novel he published the following year is of the most interest for our purposes. 
Yeah, so it's called Alrona, and it's informed by these devilish eugenical ideas and Aver's Nietzschean philosophy. It's also apparently an early manifestation of the concept of fembot, aka gynoid. So, in other words, there's a direct lineage from Alrona to Austin Powers, which is kind of fitting, uh, seeing as we're talking about dorky sex pests engaged in espionage. Anyways, Alrona is also an inversion of the Frankenstein myth. The story goes something like this. So, uh, Braun, Aver's double, inseminates a prostitute with the semen of an executed murderer. I maybe should have said trigger warning, because this is pretty fucked up, but um, evidently the pregnancy takes, and a soulless, uh, homunculus girl child is created, named Alrona, of course. And yes, the root word of the name is quote-unquote rune. So, obvious Nazi overtones here. The homunculus eventually uh, wreaks revenge upon her creator, committing numerous quote-unquote uh, monstrous acts along the way. Although, from what I can tell, Frank Braun lives to die another day. Uh, <laughs> I'm just realizing that was a nice little uh, Bond pun uh, thrown in there when we're talking about these occult espionage agents. Braun is once again the protagonist in Aver's third book in this loose horror trilogy. Speaking of which, the third book concerns Braun's eventual vampirism, brought about by his blood-sucking of a Jewish heiress, which becomes even uglier when juxtaposed with Aver's eventual Nazism. So, with this brief survey of Aver's written works, can you see why he and Crowley would have gotten along? Moonchilds and mandrakes, sex magic, mutual interest in Nazism, etc. Oh yeah, and this is a this is a crucial synchronicity, a weird one that um we forgot to mention. So from from what I can tell, Alrona appears to have been directly inspired by the mandrake root, which has been associated with the gallows since at least the Middle Ages. In fact, Mandragora uh, Aficionarum's folkloric etiology claims that the semen from the men hanged on the gallow trees supposedly drips down, seeps into the earth, and causes the mandrake root to sprout miraculously. Which, now that I'm thinking about it, has me wondering whether there's an additional esoteric meaning to the quote-unquote hanged man of the major arcana connected to the mandrake root. I'm wondering this in part because I know that Crowley, at the very least, did connect the 
Hanged Man Poe's two-sex magic in one of his magical workings. I believe this was uh, during his time in Paris. Very interesting. And I think that you set this up quite perfectly for um, kind of the perfect segue for another thing that involves mandrake roots. And I mean, if you want, I can just, you know, uh, go off on that for a little bit. Yeah, sure. Well, the inspiration that yeah. Avers took from the mandrake root rhymes with a legend regarding Hanusin that we haven't yet discussed. And for this tale, we're primarily pulling from Lavinda's Unholy Alliance. And, you know, listeners should be aware that not every authority on Hanusin um, necessarily supports his account or Lavinda's timeline of events, but Lavinda is of the opinion that Adolf Hitler and Hanussen had met as early as 1926, and others like Megida contend that Hanussen and Hitler likely never met in person until at least the 1930s. Um, maybe we'll get into the weeds of Lavinda's sources after this anecdote, but we can just start by rehashing it. And Lavinda writes that in 1932, following Eva Braun's suicide attempt um, with a firearm, uh, and Lavinda can't help but point out that this occurred on Sam Hain, um, Hitler was at the nadir of his political career. And evidently, Berlin papers were publishing preemptive obituaries of the fall of the NSDAP. And the party had just suffered heavy losses in the Reichstag. And according to Lavinda, things were so dire in the Fuhrer's mind that he was being pretty fatalistic among his inner circle. And in this moment of desperation, Hitler supposedly sought out the mystic and telepath that he had met some six years earlier. And I believe that by 1932, Hanussen had purchased and begun publishing his occult weekly and it's likely that he was one of the most famous and recognizable astrologers in Berlin at the time. Lavinda claims that Hanussen erected Hitler's natal and probably a transit or progressed chart and appeared before Hitler with an eerie prognosis. Hanussen told his host that there were good times ahead, but that a few obstacles remained that had to be eliminated, end quote. And so Lavinda contends that these obstacles that Hanussen alerted Hitler to weren't people or political conditions, but actually some kind of hex or magical spell that had been placed on the Nazi leader. And this makes me think of the occult battle for Britain, of course, and the stories of Dion Fortune waging magical warfare against Nazi wizards. Anyways, Lavinda goes on to claim that Hanussen was employed by Hitler to perform a magical ritual that would counteract the baneful influence that was purportedly dampening Hitler's political prospects. And so I'll just go ahead and read from Lavinda for a little while. In order to rid himself of this evil spell, he said one would have to go to Hitler's hometown at the time of the full moon, at midnight, in a butcher's backyard and remove a mandrake from the ground. Now, a mandrake is the man-shaped root famous throughout European folklore for its occult and medicinal properties. According to some traditions, one had to stop one's ears with cloth 
or cotton before pulling the roof from the earth, as it would emit a piercing scream that would shatter the eardrums. A dog was sometimes used to pull the root from the earth as the magician kept his hands clasped around his own ears. The resulting shriek, it is said, normally killed the dog. The mandrake is also known for its powers as an aphrodisiac and as an amulet of protection. We must assume that Hanusen was thinking of this last property in connection with Hitler. Also, the significance of the butcher's yard should not be ignored. Such a place would have given the surrounding earth the peculiar quality of a veritable, veritable Teutonic orgy of blood, dismemberment, death, and pain, which would have been mystically absorbed by the root itself. Hanusen decided to perform the necessary rituals himself and set off for Hitler's birthplace in Austria, returning on New Year's Day 1933 with the amulytic root and with a prediction that Hitler's return to power would begin on January 30th, a day roughly equivalent to the pagan Sabbath of Omelk. I'm not exactly sure how that's pronounced, one of the four cross-quarter days of the witch's calendar. It seemed an outrageous prediction, but after a series of bizarre coincidences and half-baked conspiratorial machinations on part of his opponents, Hitler went from washed-up political has-been to Chancellor of Germany with dizzying speed in 30 days, and on January 30, 1933, assumed power. Hanussen's impossibly optimistic prediction came true to the day. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. So. Not to be too crackpot, but it's hard not to be a little intrigued by the possible numerological significance of this sequence. I could be wrong here, and I'm admittedly no expert on occultism, numerology, or the tarot, but uh, Lavenda's sequence of events has Hanusin supposedly performing this ritual on New Year's Eve of 1933, right? and then Hitler taking power exactly 30 days later. For one, you've got the fact that this occurred in 33 and the Masonic significance of that number. I also did a quick Google search, uh, nothing fancy, but tried to look into whether, um, or tried to look into what the numerological significance of the number 30 is. And one thing I saw that did strike me as a little uncanny is that the number 30 supposedly corresponds with the 12th major arcana card of the tarot, the aforementioned hanged man, which, as we've mentioned, is also associated with the mandrake root. You also have the fact that 12, when added, equals 3, and that 30 is the decade of 3. There are a few theories about the mythic origins of the hanged man card that are also intriguing to consider in relation to this supposed magical working of Hanusin's. One is that the Hanged Man card evokes Odin, hanging himself from Yggdrasil to attain knowledge of the runes. Remember Alrona? So, the possibility that Hanusin was cognizant of these possible mythic correspondences also jives with Hitler and the Nazis' obsession with Nordic myth. So <laughs> that's very interesting. Some tarot heads dispute that the hanged man was uh, alluding to Odin, at least in the 
um, Italian OG decks. Some seem to argue that it's unlikely that 14th century Italians would have been familiar with the Odin myth. Um, I don't know what you think, Luke, but I, I personally don't think it's impossible that the hanged man could have been consciously designed to evoke this tale regarding Odin, but there's another possible association to consider. So evidently early versions of the hanged man were often referred to as the quote-unquote traitor, and the card was thought to correspond to Judas. This is also a possible source for the correspondence with the number 30, as Judas supposedly received 30 silver coins in return for his betrayal of Christ. I, I think I have that right. That's true, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, like, that's right. Yes, yes. Great. Um, similarly, Judas was infamously driven to hang himself in despair over what he'd done, at least according to one version of the events following the crucifixion. I also found one reference to the Golden Dawn seemingly associating the hanged man with personal sacrifice for personal gain. This was in uh, some online forum, admittedly, so be aware that this may not be factual. Similarly, I also saw someone claiming that uh, Eliphas Levi had a kind of Promethean interpretation of the hanged man. So the question becomes, was Hanusin aware of these like mythic valences and correspondences when he performed this supposed magical ritual? Another thing I'm just thinking of now, I, I didn't even put this in the notes, but I'm, since Hanusin knew Avers, is it possible that uh, Alrona directly influenced this magical working? Just, yeah, should make that explicit that, you know, there very well could be a connection um, in that sense as well. And uh, another question would be, were these mystic uh, or mythic valences even like baked into this purported uh, bit of ritual magic, so to speak? All I know is that it's undoubtedly very intriguing. And uh, yeah. Some of the stuff I found that it was admittedly just a bit of like manic um, internet sleuthing. Uh, so you know, take some of the stuff that I that I said with a grain of salt. Those kinds of like synchronicities are always fun. Um, so Lavenda's source for this story, by the way, about Hanussen apparently performing this ritual for Hitler, appears to be the Toland book on Hitler, which seems like a fairly solid source. I haven't read Tolan's uh, bio yet myself, so I cannot verify whether that account is in Tolan's book, but Toland is at least who Lavenda cites for that. So now that we've discussed the curious synchronicity between Anderson's Mandrake Root counterspell and Hans Heinz Aver's use of Mandrake Root symbolism, was there anything else about Avers and his purported connection to Hanusin that you wanted to cover? Seeing that Avers was inspired by some decadent literary figures, this is another potential overlap between he and Crowley. Specifically, Avers gave 
a series of lectures titled The Religion of Satan, the title of which riffed off of a work by the Polish writer um, Przybysz. Um, <laughs> yeah, Polish oh names are impossible. They're, they're hard. Uh, I know because I, ha- I happen to have met someone with this first name uh, in my life. So I believe, I believe the first name is Stanislav. And then um, Przybyszewski. Przybyszewski is what I'm going to say. Uh, that's my best attempt. Um, and he, this Polish writer published a German book in 1897 called Die Synagogue des Satan. Uh, or the synagogue of Satan. Um, now, whether Aver's lectures were actually satanic, uh, we can't say. We'll have to leave that up for the listener to ascertain, but we did notice that. <coughs> Had a little something flying in my throat there. Um, do you want to uh, take a break for just like t- three minutes so I can grab some water? Yeah, 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 we can do that.
Got my Naked Juice, got my Izzy. Oh yeah, you're all ready to go. Dude. So, I just looked this up, and the book, The Synagogue of Zayn by Stanislaw uh, Presbyzewski, or however his name is pronounced. So, the there is um, some verses in the Bible that um, say the synagogue of Satan in them when uh, Jesus is referring to the Pharisees, which... It gets complicated because there was a uh, Jewish temple tax that the Roman Empire made the Jews um, pay in order to where they could, you know, practice their religion and not have to worship the pagan gods. But then this Jewish temple tax would have the money used to build pagan altars and stuff like that. And uh, and it goes into other layers of, you know, being complicated. And obviously Jesus was always battling with the Pharisees and what have you. So I thought, you know, uh, you know, realized that the name of this was some sort of play off of it. So I was wondering if it was a strictly satanic work. And so I Googled it and the Wikipedia page says that it is considered a foundational work of Satanism and that um, this author wow. was the first to refer to himself as a Satanist. So I guess you could Wait, say in a way... Um, no, um, the book that Avers was oh, inspired the, by and was ripping off of. Yes, this Polish guy was the first person, um, to call himself a Satanist, according to, um, Wikipedia. So, and obviously his, uh, you know, co-opting that term from a Bible is like, uh, uh, you know, where Jesus is obviously, you know, stating this as, uh, you know, a bad thing that, you know, you're of your father, the devil. <laughs> um, I guess he's, you know kind of you know reversing it around you know classic satanic inversion but i thought that that was yeah. profoundly interesting that he was the first person um on record apparently to um label himself uh, a satanist wow yeah and it looks like that's it's a really new spiritual really satanism too because um he talks about the development of uh you know black masses and witches sabbats and and stuff like that in the book. So, you know, uh, you know, I mean, obviously the church of Satan didn't exist at this time, but, you know, not like identifying necessarily with Satan as, you know, um, a literary figure or something like that. Like, you know, uh, you know, most modern day Satanists would be, of course, I'm talking from a place of ignorance because I've read, you know, a few paragraphs on Wikipedia, but anyways, I just thought that I would mention that because, uh, I mean that that's interesting. I I had no idea that who the first person to call themselves a Satanist was. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Uh, it's making me want to read more about this Polish uh, author and um, uh, what was it, Stanislaw Przybyszewski, probably um, something like that. That's yeah, that's really wild. So I see another potential connection. Remember um, when I was describing Hans uh, Heinz Aver's literary influences earlier on? Uh, he also was influenced by um, the decadent movement, which connects him to uh, connects him to Crowley, uh, as Crowley spent time in Fond de Siècle, uh, France. I've done a couple episodes on um, Satanism in France at that time. Um, so 
it's really interesting to think about um, Hans Heinz Avers, uh, who admittedly seems to have um, kind of picked up and run with uh, this very like transgressive and like taboo breaking literature. Um, and I'm and I'm certain was probably inspired by um, uh, the Damned. Are you familiar with that book, Luke? I'm not. I'm not familiar with it. Oh word, dude. Oh man. Uh, J.K. Huizmaw is uh, a really interesting figure, and he was definitely an influence on Crowley and others. And he wrote this book called um, La Ba. Uh, or Down There, or The Damned. Um, and it was published in 1891, and it's his most famous work, definitely his most infamous. Um, and it's another one of these, like, uh, at least in a literary sense, foundational texts of Satanism. Um, and in it, uh, he actually, he describes attending a uh, Satanic Mass. Even though it's fictional, it it also was uh, inspired by a fair bit of his own experiences. Huizman did a ton of research with this very, <laughs> this really bad uh, fella, this um, abbey named Joseph Antoine Bouillon. He had rumors circulating in, in Paris among the occult community there that he had uh, literally killed children, uh, like infanticide in magical rituals. He, he was a really despicable um, figure who ultimately ended up dying during a uh, essentially a magical duel. I mean, not in the sense of, you know, like casting spells at each other, uh, a remote uh, magical warfare. Huizmaw maintained throughout his life that Bouillon died while um, basically uh, dueling it out. I believe it was with um, Gerard Ancos of uh, of the Martinist Order, aka um, uh, Papus. But yeah, there's there's some really wild history there too, and uh, I'm I'm really glad you found that that you found that stuff about uh, that text. Um, well, and I did some more reading on his Wikipedia page, and I mean, it seems like that if you were to dig more into this guy, you could find a lot more interesting stuff. But he had uh, children with this one woman um, named Martha Forder, and um, then he would leave her with two children to have um, children with a child with another woman, and then he would bounce back and forth between their house, but then. Martha died under some kind of sus circumstances, and he was uh, a suspect in her murder, but ultimately they determined that she died of carbon monoxide poisoning. But anyways, um, so this Stanislav guy seems like he's, you know, very interesting. Uh, but yeah, I mean, apparently he just got real into Nietzsche, and then after getting real into Nietzsche, you know, started, uh, you know, being part of Bohemian Berlin and, you know, running around calling himself a Satanist, uh, and I guess the first guy to, to do so. So, uh, anyways, um, I was just going to say, look out folks, we might have to do another, uh, PPM things observed investigation into, uh, Stanislav, the Satanist. <laughs> Probably if you start digging into all the, you know, very initial 
Satanist and stuff, because I feel like a lot of the times, you know, people's history of Satanism begins, you know, in 1966 with the creation of of the Church of Satan, um, which, I mean, of course, is interesting. But, uh, yeah, uh, uh, it seems like there's some other interesting characters, you know, the guy who you talked about who wrote The Damned and stuff. So I'm sure that that could be an episode in its own right. But um, anyways, we can go ahead and get back into things because we got quite a few, uh, got some notes to get through. Definitely. Um, So as we were mentioning earlier, Crowley and Hans Avers knew each other directly. And judging from appearances, they were actually rivals in the great game of World War One, assets of the intelligence apparatus of their respective uh, countries. They both were involved in espionage work in the U.S. Crowley seems to have been engaged in various acts of infiltration and surveillance at the behest of the British Empire, and his interest in Avers may have been motivated by more than approbation of his occult abilities, which Crowley did uh, talk very laudingly about Avers on at least uh, one or two occasions. Likewise, it's possible that Avers' relationship with Crowley was motivated by a desire to turn him or else parse out Crowley's true sympathies, be what they may. I tend to agree with uh, Richard Spence's take that Crowley was a lifelong Tory and British patriot who donned a variety of disguises for different espionage purposes. Crowley may have been involved in Surveilling and infiltrating groups as varied as the common term, the IRA, legitimist elements in the Golden Dawn, and increasingly, as the Second World War neared, British fascisti. The slipperiness of Crowley's public pronouncements and the difficulty of ascertaining the true purpose of his various activities is illustrated by an infamous article that Alistair wrote for a publication called The Fatherland, this was during World War I, that also connects to Avers, as the publisher was George Sylvester Weyrich, the uh, German-American poet-propagandist who served in the German quote-unquote propaganda cabinet in the U.S. with Avers during the Great War. Crowley's op-ed for the journal seems to have served the purpose of building his cover among these German intel circles. The piece resulted in Crowley's public tar and feathering in British dailies, as his call for the British Empire's reorganization as a subject of Germany was deemed traitorous. So Avers and Weyrich are two of the links between Crowley and Hanusen. All right, so I know that we already discussed uh, Lavenda's account of Hanusen's Mandrake counterspell, but Luke, can you tell us a bit about some of the other accounts and 
versions of Hanussen's entree into Hitler's circle. How did Hanussen help hone Hitler's public speaking abilities? And uh, is there any photographic evidence of the two of them together? Yeah, so in a short answer, yes, there is. Um, but so how exactly Hitler and Hanussen came to know one another is, you know, a matter of historical debate, as we've already touched on when we were in the Labinda portion. Uh, the journalist Quincy Howe would actually say that they had met in 1930, but the author of the book Triumph of the Will, Dr. David Lewis, seems to think that it was more likely that the two became acquainted with one another in 1932. And that's kind of one of the interesting things about uh, Hanussen and Hitler meeting is that there are so many different dates that are thrown around as to when exactly it is that they would first come into contact with one another. But as I said, David Lewis believes that it was in 1932 when Hitler would write Hanussen after his sex successful prediction of the death of Prince Lobkowitz. Um, might be pronouncing that wrong, but Hanussen would then instruct Hitler, who was beginning to attract larger and larger crowds to his rallies during this time, and Hanussen would impart on him tricks of the trade that he had picked up as a stage performer, as well as hypnotic techniques that Hanussen was well versed in that Hitler could use to further captivate audiences and mold public opinion. And so this training in hypnotic suggestion would include tips on how Hitler could use body language, gestures, inflections, timing, extrasensory attunement, all in order to help him garner support. And something that I found rather interesting is that in Triumph of the Will, um, which you sent me some passages that details all of this, um, that I'm discussing right now is that Dr. David Lewis cites the author, Joseph Howard Tyson, who says that Hanussen would tell Hitler to deliver his speeches at night because the psychological resistance ebbed low during this time of the day, which I did just a little yeah. bit of brief research into this. But it does seem like there is um, some slight evidence to suggest that people are more suggestible to do things they wouldn't normally do at night. I mean, I think a lot of the times we think of this in the context of, you know, people party at night, they're drinking at night, but also um, just being tired can put you in a different headspace. And um, I mean, this is very sad, but I was reading about how most suicides, murders, um, all different other types of crime and um, self-harm happens to take place at night. So it seems like there could be some sort of scientific precedent for the you know fact that um people are more suggestible at night and it also just made me to think about you know the the witching hour or um satan's hour you know in folklore which is you know usually either midnight or 3 a.m when people are um you know the veil between our realm uh the material and the realm of things unseen is you know um lessened but anyways, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent. Uh -huh. Hanussen would also stress to the viewer the importance of, you know, setting his stage through banners and lighting, processions, music, and so forth, that all increased the power of, of group hypnosis, excuse me. But um, to return to the body language techniques that Hanussen shared with Hitler as detailed in Triumph of the Will, um, 
you know, there was, you know, facial expression, voice tone, and as well as ways he could leverage eye movement and other expressions to um, woo audiences and specifically woo the females in the audience. And in fact, I'll just read a brief quote from Triumph of the Will that I think uh, articulates well, you know, just how exactly some of these gestures Hanus and Pot Hitler could emotionally manipulate an audience. And it reads, Anusin explained the importance of different hand movements when communicating a wide range of emotions. High plane gestures, which end with the hand raised above the shoulders, express emotional, physical, or mental elevation, while what he termed low plane gestures, terminating below the waist, convey the opposite meaning. These he contrasted with front plane gestures, used to communicate unity, advancement, strong agreement, and direct personal involvement. Um, the secret of success, the psychic told him, was to make every single member of even the largest audience believe he was speaking directly and personally to them alone. Um, and Hitler would take these you know, techniques very seriously. And um, there's actually some interesting photographs from Triumph of the Will where I can't remember the name of the photographer off the top of my Hoffman. head, but Hoffman, yes, that Hitler would film himself practicing these techniques, you know, um, so that way he could, you know, go back and better improve upon them and stuff. And I think that, you know, something that pretty much everyone knows about Hitler is how animated he was in his movements and stuff. And so it was very interesting to me to learn that um, these animated and exaggerated movements that, um, would eventually become secondhand nature to him and that he would, you know, incorporate deeply into all of his public speaking and stuff was taught to him by none other than Eric Jan Hanussen. But Hanussen would not only instruct Hitler on how to hypnotize others, but he would also teach Hitler self-hypnosis self techniques that would help him believe in the power of his own destiny and, you know, one can only wonder how much these techniques were uh, responsible for his belief in himself and the destiny and the destiny of the German people and, and what have you. And, um, you know, that's not even mentioning the fact that, you know, some of the astrological charts and fortunes that Hanussen would publish would also, you know, kind of further blow Hitler full of smoke and, you know, make him further <laughs> believe in his destiny and the destiny of the German people. So um, that's all all very interesting stuff. And I'm glad that you sent me those um, segments from Triumph of the Will so that way I could learn more about all of this. Yeah, yeah, it's wild stuff. Uh, speaking of the tale of Hanussen's mass hypnotic tutelage of Hitler that you just shared, I thought I could fly off course here a little bit and share some other research that I've been sitting on related to the Harvard psychoanalyst and colleague of Henry Murray's named Walter Langer, specifically his enlistment by the OSS to write a psychoanalytic report on the Fuhrer. This OSS report and one other fascinating nugget from his bio relate to Eric Jan Hanussen. And the implications are pretty fascinating. Let's start by just reading the excerpt about uh, Hanussen from the OSS report, published in book form 
as the mind of Hitler, approximately two decades after he authored it, at the behest of Wild Bill Donovan. Quote, so, it is true that it looks as though Hitler might be acting under some guidance of the sort that gives him the feeling and conviction of his own infallibility. These stories probably originated in the very early days of the party. According to Strasser, during the early 1920s, Hitler took regular lessons in speaking and in mass psychology from a man named Hanussen, who was also a practicing astrologer and fortune teller. He was an extremely clever individual who taught Hitler a great deal concerning the importance of staging meetings to obtain the greatest dramatic effect. Luke just covered this. As far as can be learned, he never had any particular interest in the movement or any say on what course it should follow. It is possible that Hanussen had some contact with a group of astrologers referred to by von Weigand, who were very active in Munich at this time. Through Hanussen, Hitler, too, may have come in contact with this group for von Weigand writes, quote, When I first knew Adolf Hitler in Munich, in 1921 and 1922. He was in touch with a circle that believed firmly in the portents of the stars. There was much whispering of the coming of, quote, another Charlemagne and a new Reich, end quote. How far Hitler believed in these astrological forecasts and prophecies in those days, I could never get out of, uh, the Fuhrer. He neither denied nor affirmed belief. He was not averse, however, to making use of the forecasts to advance popular faith in himself and his then young and struggling movement. It is quite possible that from these beginnings, the myth of his association with astrologers has grown. Uh, and a big end quote. That is the excerpt from the report written by Walter Langer for the OSS that was later published in the late 60s that refers to Hanussen and uh, not only that, but uh, confirmed all the way back then that Hanussen actually schooled Hitler in mass hypnosis and um, these other techniques. One of the things that's interesting about this OSS report is the fact that a decent number of like mainstream historians seem to kind of erm actually the evidence that not only did Hitler have a direct relationship with Hanussen, but that Hitler was hypnotized at uh, Passavolk, also instructed in mass hypnosis by Hanussen in the 1920s. 
I don't entirely understand why that is, uh, why there seems to be uh, a subset of, of people um, who dispute this, partially because, um, in my mind, it seems pretty likely to me that whatever intel Langer and the OSS had regarding Strasser's claim that Hanussen schooled Hitler in the early 20s uh, would be authentic and accurate for a couple reasons. First of all, I doubt that this would be a fabrication intended to discredit Hitler because this report was um, meant only for OSS officers and agents, and it remained classified for years after the war's conclusion. To me, that indicates that any argument that it is propaganda intended to smear or discredit Hitler rings hollow. I mean, literally in this passage, Langer writes about Hitler's manipulation of astrology, prohibition of star reading early in the Nazi reign, etc. I didn't actually read the quote um, about the prohibition of uh, star reading, but I think it's uh, like a little earlier on that page or the one before it. A frequent argument that serious historians seem to make is that theories about Hitler's interest in the occult and esoterica were concocted by intelligence agencies to make him, you know, appear deranged or whatever. My point is that this report uh, wasn't intended for the public and that Langer accurately portrays the ambiguities of Hitler's relationship with astrology and esotericism. So that indicates to me that the additional claim about Hitler and Hanussen seems likely to be legitimate. Anyways, I'm not going to go uh, in deep on Walter C. Langer for time's sake, but I'll quickly gloss over some uh, a few interesting things regarding his life, uh, intel relationships, and other weirdness I found that um, I'll probably cover in a bit more detail in a later PPM thing. So first of all, got to mention that Langer was a German-American. If I remember correctly, his parents immigrated to Boston from Germany. Also, all three of the Langer brothers utilized their respective academic expertise for the American military and or intelligence. Walter's psychoanalytic skills were employed by the OSS during wartime, likely spurred along in part because of his working relationship with Dr. Henry Murray, who, Wild Bill Donovan, enlisted in drafting the uh, psychiatric exam and criteria for OSS agents, and the fact that Langer's historian brother, William, was head of the research and intelligence branch. William would go on to found and run the National Estimates Department in the Central Intelligence Agency. Anyways, in the early 30s, Langer worked with Dr. Henry Murray at the Harvard Psych Clinic, where they performed hypnotherapeutic treatments and experiments on World War I veterans. So, if listeners aren't aware, Dr. Henry Murray is the 
MK Ultra psychiatrist who played a singular role in the psychic assault endured by a teenage Harvard student named Ted Kaczynski under the auspices of an MK Ultra subproject in the 1950s. Another fascinating overlap between Langer's life and uh, Hanussen and Hitler is the fact that Langer not only served on the Western Front in World War I, but he also was exposed to a gas attack in France, which, if I remember correctly, drew his campaign to a close. That last bit about the gas attack obviously uh, most harmonizes with Hitler's uh, wartime experience. Um, Hanussen, at least to my knowledge, I don't think Hanussen was ever exposed to uh, any chemical warfare agents. Um, from what I remember reading, but uh, I could be wrong. I can't remember exactly, and I might be conflating this with um, some other stuff that I've looked into regarding G.H. Estabrooks's um, World War I service, but I believe it's possible that Langer was um, exposed to hypnosis during his recuperation after that attack. Don't quote me on it, because I, I have to double-check some sources, but yeah, I think there's a possibility at the very least. Anyways, um, Langer cited Hanussen in his OSS report, as we said, which provides a crucial piece of evidence of Hanussen's relationship with Hitler. So that's concrete connection between Langer and EJH number one. The second would be the fact that Walter C. Langer, German Harvardian and Massachusetts psychoanalyst, played a pivotal role in helping to smuggle the Freud family out of Vienna via train in the late 30s. So if you listen to part one, You'll remember that Luke and I discussed how there are claims of varying degrees of believability that indicate that E.J.H. met Freud, or at least his pupil, Paul Schilder, who observed Hanussen. A last point would be simply that, so we've been gradually uh, constructing this argument that Hanussen was likely a British intel asset, meaning, um, meaning that he would have been allied with the intelligence elements of the United States as well. And uh, broadly speaking, I, I just wonder whether Hanussen's sexual blackmail work and the kinds of compromise and information that he was compiling about. SA and SS officials might have uh, contributed in some way to some of the information that made it into the mind of Adolf Hitler. My memory is, I believe, that the mind of Adolf Hitler, the book version of the OSS report, and you can't actually find the like unredacted, declassified version of the report online. There, there are PDFs of it, um, of, of the full version. I've never compared the two to see what's included and what isn't. 
But in the book version two, I believe, uh, there is reference to Hitler's supposed sadomasochism and that Hitler was into uh, poop stuff, so so to speak. Uh, and all of this, these six hours have been charting the influence that Eric Yan Hanusen's sexual blackmail work may have uh, contributed directly to that that um, nugget, that log of information. Oh, that log. <laughs> nugget, too. <laughs> that, <laughs> he logged the information about uh, Hitler's... <laughs> what is the... Fr- There's a specific phrase for, um, for poop stuff. It's like something phagia. I hate to admit that I know this, but coprophagia. There we go. <laughs> I knew that you would, Luke. <laughs> Thank you. Two minds are better than one, folks. Um, okay, awesome. Yeah, it so might be worse. <laughs> I don't even know at this point. I'm ashamed to. Yeah, but yeah. So to complete to complete the pun, this has all been about charting that Hanusen may himself have logged <laughs> logged the memo about Hitler's coprophagia. Finally, got the pun out. Almost like I'm a little verbally constipated. Well, unfortunately, I don't have Luke here with me, but I just wanted to take a second to insert (laughs) a segue, like a uh, podcasting enema that will help to move us from the potential shit coding utility of. Eric Yan Hanusen's sexual blackmail work for the um, intelligence apparatus of the Allies to a discussion of his possible involvement in the sabotage of uh, Prince Lobkovich's vehicle in the Avis Grand Prix in Berlin, as well as uh, the Reichstag fire and further discussion of the ins and outs. <laughs> I gotta get rid of these chuckles. Uh, the ins and outs of Hanusen's relationship, uh, symbiotic relationship with the Nazis in part three, which will be coming at you, um, uh, pretty soon here. Hope you've enjoyed this episode and, uh, Make sure to check out both of our shows, subscribe to our Patreons, give us a follow on Twitter, all of those things. Thanks so much.